Come to the conclusion that media collusion is wrapped up in denial and deceit and delusion. It can't be true. Come on and get a clue. Cause everybody knows white people do it too. I really I was in an airplane one time and I was talking to the guy sitting next to me. Yeah, we were in first class if you have to know. Anyway, I was asking him what he did. He said he was a management consultant. So when I meet somebody that's in a, in a, in a you know, at the top of their field or in near the top or really good at what they do, I always ask them. And then I say, what's, uh, so what's like the big secret of your profession? What's the big difference between a performing and a non-performing organization? And then he took his hands out and he grasped, clasped them together. I probably will not be able to do justice to this. But he he had his fingers pointing in to, back to himself. He said, dysfunctional organizations are always looking inward. And high-performing organizations are always looking outward. Not too long after that, I saw in, in the New York Times, so it has to be true. I saw a definition for depression. It said depression is the, is the morbid preoccupation with the self. So if somebody's sitting around on a couch gazing at their navel, thinking about all the old times... I don't know if they were good times or bad times, probably bad times, thinking about the bad things they did or the bad things that happened to them that led them to a position where they're on some broken down couch staring at their navel. That's an organization that's looking at itself inwardly way too much. That's a person who's morbidly preoccupied with themselves. That's depression. Take the same person Make them look outside about all the opportunities they have. Well, you know what they can do today or tomorrow, and you know how they can improve themselves. Well, that's a whole different mojo, isn't it? That's the opposite of depression. And when you see people like that, people that are always out there doing something, trying to figure out how to improve something other than themselves. Oh yeah, when I go into somebody's house and I see about a thousand. Uh, self-help books, I'm definitely looking around from my watch or my iPhone, something to say, oh, darn it, look at the time. I've got to go. Hey, Colin, you've only been here for three minutes. Yeah, I know, isn't it a bitch? Gotta go. See ya. There are no lies in our house. So just a couple weeks ago, no, a couple days ago, actually, uh, um, the New York Times ran a big story on... One of the most morbidly inward-looking organizations I've ever heard of in my life. But here's the thing. I'm kind of a hermit, so I'm sure there's lots of other ones out there. You know, the guy who first saw this and kind of figured out what he was really reading was Steve Saylor over at VDARE, um, uh, VDARE, the website and organization. Here's what he, here's how Mr. Saylor tagged it. The future of the American workplace. And it's all about this, the Buttigieg, the guy running for president, 
He has his staffers, like 40% black staffers. But they're all demoralized. They're demoralized because, well, well, you know what? Why don't we just read some of this New York Times article and we'll see what the Steve Saylor vision of hell looks like. Mr. Carson, I think you ought to see this. New York Times. Inside the Boudicca campaign, as staff members of Kala, uh, we call them the Smocks, S-M-O-C's, Smock, Smock. <laughs> it's an old Steve Allen bit. As the Smocks sought to be heard. As the candidate courted non-white voters, we're talking about Buttigieg, employees of color were voicing their frustrations. The campaign said it worked to foster a progressive workplace. In early December, more than 100 members of Buttigieg's presidential campaign staff gathered at the South Bend City Church, a mile from headquarters, for a mandatory half-day retreat about diversity and inclusion. The article went on to say that most of the other campaigns, people running for office, they weren't, you know, they were out actively campaigning at that very minute. The Boudicca advisors, I'm very proud of myself, by the way, that I finally figured out how to say his name. Did I get it right? The Boudicca advisors say the retreat was part of an ongoing effort to foster a progressive culture that empowered employees of color. Smocks, smocks. Uh, for some of these, for some of the staff members, however, the workplace itself was a problem. And working for a candidate with so little support from black and Hispanic voters had become demoralizing. You know, Sailor figured this out right away. It's like, you know, your job is to be around and somehow do something to attract support to the campaign. And in Buttigieg's, in their world, they're all about identity politics. So you, know, you go out and hire 40% of your people who are schmucks. And, uh, and, and, you know, a year later, you look around and you're schmucks. They're not doing a good job because there's nobody who likes Buttigieg. What are you jump down my throat here? I'm only offering friendly advice. Now they turn around and go, well, because, you know, you're not, you know, we're not, I'm not doing a very good job. They don't even say that. They kind of blame everything on Buttigieg. And uh, they're all bummed out that they're not doing a good job. In interviews, current and former staff members of Kala Schmucks. Sometimes I feel as if I were living in a, an H.G. Wells novel. Staff members of color said they believe the senior Baudigier officials didn't listen to their concerns and ideas about the campaign. One said there was a daily emotional weight on people of color. Schmucks! Who felt they were employed in order to help the campaign meet its ambition, ambitious diversity targets. Some Hispanic employees felt disrespected. When managers asked them to translate text, even if they didn't speak Spanish. Hmm. Don't be messing with the smocks. Follow-up meeting nearly two weeks after the retreat, retreat became emotional, according to two people who attended. Some smocks uh, spoke about being disrespected by white colleagues. Others said they felt stressed from having to answer questions from friends and family members about working for a candidate struggling with minority voters. A second meeting featured lengthy discussions of the importance of diversity in hiring 
and sometimes tearful descriptions of the difficulty of recruiting schmucks to the staff, according to a recording of the session that was provided to the New York Times. Oh yeah, that's a healthy sign. You got people sneaking tape recorders into staff meetings. From the beginning, this is such a great article. Mr. Buttigieg's inner circle of top advisors, most of whom are white, went to great lengths to hire a diverse staff. They say they reached their target number, 40% of 40% people of color. High proportion that is usually a plus for campaign outrage to voters of color. The Vox, Vox, spokesman for the campaign said they made an effort to hire people of color in leadership positions, including Brandon Neal, a senior advisor. The campaign held an initial staff retreat that included a session on diversity in May, then held the December retreat in South Bend, and they scheduled local retreats in December and January for workers in Iowa, Nevada, South Carolina, said the dude. Yet as Mr. Buttigieg rose in the polls through last year, his struggle to win over black voters became the biggest threat to his chances and pained many minority staff members, many Smocks. Okay, this is now here comes here comes Sailor's comment. Steve Sailor. Vider. Okay, but the people of color staffers are getting paid to help win over the people of color voters. So maybe rather than complain about how they aren't accomplishing what they were hired to do, they should apologize for their failures and then work harder. Oh yeah, we gotta re-educate Sailor on this. Oh yeah, this dude's going off to the camp. Here's a word never mentioned in the article. Gay. One big reason Buttigieg isn't winning over black voters is because he is gay. But this is going to be like after the 2008 referendum in California when tons of black church ladies turned out to vote for the nice Mr. Obama and stayed to vote against gay marriage. That was so embarrassing to the coalition of fringes that the New York Times had to blame the California results on how Mormons control the media in California. Okay, let's get back to the New York Times. At one point, Mr. Shmuel, tears in his eyes, told staff members that he understood the schmucks on the campaign were hurting, according to three people who were present. January 1, the campaign's National Engagement Coordinator, Raven Hollins, circulated a survey soliciting examples of microaggressions in the workplace asking that only people of color complete it. The first question asked whether employees of color had experienced any of the six microaggressions from a white colleague, including a list that, include, a list that included being interrupted and called the name of a different staff member of color. So you cannot call one staff member the name of another schmuck. The person who gave out the comment was not really that eager to talk to the New York Times about it. But for some reason, says Sailor, the survey didn't ask if any white people had touched your hair, which is a mess. He calls it a mesoaggression in itself. Back to the article. Also during the January 2 meeting, 
Buttigieg aides responsible for meeting the campaign's diversity goals spoke in emotional terms about the difficulty of hiring minority candidates. Schmucks. The recording shows. If you got people sneaking recordings into your campaign meetings, you are so hosed. Oh, by the way, who was sneaking the recording meetings in? Hmm. You, know, you got to think about all the guys working for Buttigieg. I mean, Buttigieg's big appeal is, I mean, not that he was the mayor of South Bend. I mean, South Bend is a dark and dirty and dangerous chocolate city. If you took Notre Dame out of South Bend, you would have a really nasty city. But I, would, I remember when I first started reading, writing, talking, doing videos and podcasts about the topic of black violence and criminality, I used to see a lot of stuff on South Bend and I kept thinking, hey, wait a minute, that's like South Bend. That's like a school on the prairie of Indiana. It's way out there. I mean, I know this for a fact because I saw the movie, Pat O'Brien, Ronald Reagan, Newt, you know, the Newt Rockney movie, it's out there on the plane. Whenever you wanted to play a little football, you went out on the cornfield or whatever. Well, that's not the South Bend of today. And Buttigieg was just a white guy in a black, you know, in the mayor of a black town. He'd go out every once in a while, tell everybody he's down with the cause. And uh, I think he kind of wore out his welcome there. But did anything happen in South Bend? You ever hear anybody say, you know, Buttigieg really got a handle on that South, that black crime and violence in South Bend. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So much so that like white people are really eager to move into South Bend into black neighborhoods because the neighborhoods are now so safe. You can take that $10,000 house, put five grand into it. All of a sudden, it's worth a hundred grand. Anybody saying that? No, what did Buttigieg do in South Bend? All he had is the whole... He thought, you know, what? Okay, he's got two things. One, he's gay. Two... This dude is articulate on a dangerous level, okay? Very, he's the, he's the slipperiest, slidingest snake among the candidates, everybody up there. But you got to appreciate the irony when the fellas and lovely ladies, when the schmucks on the campaign turn around and talk to his campaign aides, many of whom are gay, when they turn around and talk to them, what is the reaction the reaction can only be, among the, the white gay guys, can only be, oh my God, I'm usually the one going around giving out questionnaires. I'm usually the one, you know, questioning everybody's tolerance and what they think about gay people. I'm the one exposing bias and bigotry around here. Now you're coming to me to expose bias and bigotry. Ah, somebody get me a latte, Kenneth. So the fellas are not done. I can't, you know, you're in a job. You know, these, these campaigns, they're lifeboats and they're constantly sinking, okay? You're constantly trying to keep it afloat while pretending that the thing is, you know, running just fine. And maybe at some point it will run fine. But you got, you know, you got all these people in a lifeboat that have to be rowing in the same direction. They've got to be, you know, bailing the water out at the same direction. And you got these people going, stop the lifeboat. Everybody stop what you're doing. We're going to have a questionnaire now about how you feel about minority people. And we're going to judge exactly how racist you are. We hired 40% black people and other schmucks. 40. Why not 50? Why not 60? Are you a racist? No, I'm not a racist. Bingo! 
A dude from American University, Ibram X. Kendi, he said anybody who denies being a racist is more of a racist. He said that on NPR and CBS. Are you saying that NPR CBS is wrong and you're right? Or are you in just more and more denial? This identity politics thing goes around and around. And all people that don't believe in it, who know it for the evil and dangerous thing that it is, all we can do to sit back and watch the snake eat its own tail. Watch the thing just devour itself. All right, let's get back to the New York Times article. Alexis Gonzaludo, a member of the campaign's fundraising department. Oh, by the way, if you work in the fundraising department, in a way, you have the, well, you have the hardest and most important job, but you also have the easiest job. I've known a lot of fundraisers. For one reason or another, Republican fundraisers call me once in a while to ask certain questions about mail or this or that. I don't know why, they just do. I have Anyway, let's put that aside. You know, you, you know if you've got a good fundraiser or not. You just check your bank balance. That's all you do. You don't go to the fundraiser and say, Hey, um, how's that minority uh, hiring thing? We got 40% minorities. No, nobody, no successful candidate in the world gives a crap about when you talk th- about that when they talk to their fundraisers. The fundraisers, part of my bad language, that's the no bullshit part of this whole thing. You're either raising money or you're not. And if you're not raising money, you're not allowed to blame it on the candidate because you knew what the candidate was before you took the job. It's a very interesting thing this whole fundraising a lot of time people get the causality backwards they think if you raise a lot of money if you if you have a lot of money um that means you'll be able to go out and spend it and attract support i found it i found actually it's the opposite the people with a lot of support get the money so yeah you you know you got to have money to spend on this and that and this and that but if you're popular you'll attract money and there's something strange that happens when you when you do find a donor, whether it's a five dollar person on the internet or a fifty thousand dollar person to your you know your pack. Once they put their money down, they are committed to you. They're in. Very unusual for somebody to put their money down and then a month later go, well, I don't really like him that much anymore. I think I'll switch on over. I mean, sometimes people give a cut. You know, to, if you want to be slick. Nobody really likes slick people. If you want to be slick, you give the same amount to this person, that person, this person, that person. Lobbyists do that. Nobody cares. But here's who's learning. I think who's going to learn the fundraising lesson right now. It's Bloomberg. He's going to spend, how what, 100 million, 200, 300, 400 million, whatever the number is. He's going to spend it on commercials. And he's going to get a lot of people looking at his commercials the way I looked at him going, hey, you know what? The guy looks like of all the seven dwarfs up there, he looks like he looks like he could actually be president. But there really has to be more of a connection. The money is the connection. He's not taking any money. Okay, Trump's the exception to all these rules. I don't think he took that much money, but maybe he did. I think he opened up his I think he opened up his things where you could give five, ten, twenty bucks. Now now Bloomberg's trying to make a virtue out of the fact that people don't can't donate to his campaign. I just think he's hurting himself by not establishing this connection with these people who would be cheerleaders for him. All there are now is people on the sidelines 
or people waiting outside the you know the gate going, hey, I, I don't know, I don't know. This looks like there's a party in there to which I'm not invited. The only one part invited is Bloomberg. He's having a party by himself, a two hundred million dollar party. Anyway, let's get back to the New York Times and Mr. Sailor Alex Gonzaludo, a member of the Buttigieg campaign fundraising department, told colleagues, "Quote." My stomach is in knots. As she talked about the difficulty of attracting diverse candidates, she said she had become dismayed when she looked in the campaign's hiring database and, quote, it's just like a bunch of white dudes, unquote. Hey, she's supposed to be the fundraiser. What is she doing looking in the, in the campaign database? So you got people... With recording devices, surreptitious recording devices, you got other people looking and the personnel files of people who may or may not be hired by Buttigieg. Does that have something to do with fundraising? Is that where you're going to find your fundraising candidates? Through that file, maybe, but it sounds like that person was just kind of on a grudge match going around looking to see how, how much white people, exactly how much white people suck. And she found out the answer. A whole lot. It's been a shock, but not a surprise. I really had to find diverse candidates. I feel a lot of pressure to, like, just hire someone. Here comes Sailor. This is the future of Amer- the American workplace. Endless meetings in which people of color get incoherently emotional. Is he talking about staff members of color? The schmucks! You could see why tech companies are letting Indians take over their firms. Diversity is not working, so creeping racial monopolization by somebody who feels zero white guilt at least might get some work done. Wow, that kind of came out of nowhere, but it's something to think about. If you hire somebody from India, you get the same amount of brownie points as you do if you hire somebody from the ghetto. And the person from India might actually sit down and do the work he was hired for. But it's funny, the the people who come over here, the immigrants who come over here, they're, you know... Whatever they are, the, the ones that are down with the system, the ones that are down with the United States, they're all, I mean, they come over and work real hard. But it's weird. You get the second and third generation, further, the further they get from their homeland. And they're the ones you see on television talking about racism against Indian people, racism against Mexican people. They're the ones making t- television programs about the second and third generations. Everybody sitting at the kitchen, at the dining room table for their whatever their equivalent of Thanksgiving dinner is. And it's the third generation that has to remind the grandparents how oppressed they are, how they are victims, and how we've got to join with the black people and hold hands because we're all just aspiring schmucks. Man, you got to wonder, when people at the New York Times were, not even the staffers, I'm talking about the readers, when people read this article, I'd, I'd love to know what they thought of it. Did people look at it and go, man, that guy's just a jackass. He's not going to win anything. Or did they say, you know, dang Boudicier, man. That dude, his heart is in the right place. And that's all that counts. You know, you hear a lot of liberals say that. Remember that song by Jewel? Only kindness matters. So I don't know. I'm actually curious. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know how, I mean, I don't assume how when people read these articles, I don't assume how they react to them one way or the other. I'd be very interested to know if people reacted to it the same way Sailor did and I did, which is, man, these guys don't know how to run a corner store and you're going to put them in charge of the biggest, 
most powerful country in the world. That's how, I mean, it's not out of the question that this guy, Buttigieg, could become a contender. And that's all they're going to do. They're going to sit around 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue like the Clinton crowd used to do. The Obama crowd used to do. They'd sit around on the floor with pizzas, like a sociology 101 class, thinking of all these great things, pretending they were all really starring in the West Wing, the worst show in the history of TV. Guess so. So here's one thing that I don't know if Sailor, Sailor probably understands this better than I do, but I, I don't really, I can't, I've never been able to really get my whole mind around the whole victimization thing. Why so many black people are so eager to be portrayed as victims. I mean, that's like, that's like their nirvana, you know, like I'm a bigger victim than you. So I get to sit in the front of the class and the lesser victims get to sit in the back of the class. No, I was a big victim too. Hey, listen, I was black. I had cancer. I had cystic fibrosis. My mom was a lesbian. My dad was gay. My sister was a bank robber who got killed at the age of 12. No, you're not going to out-victim me, dude, any of this. So thus, so here we come into the victim stage. It's like everybody takes their turn on the stage, right? So I don't know why. You remember, you remember Jordy LaForge from one of the Star Trek TV shows and movies? He's the black guy that had that mask or visor around his, his eyes. I think he was the engineer. Anyway, I remember the first time. I just thought he was just a right. It didn't occur to me that he was one way or the other. I just thought, hey, he's an actor trying to make his own way out there. Good for him. I know he was in Roots. I somehow managed to miss Roots. He was Kunta Kinte. Anyway, after a couple of years after he was done with Star Trek, well, you don't, you don't really, you don't, you don't really ever get done with that, do you? I saw him on the Bill O'Reilly show. Bill asked him kind of an innocuous question, and all of a sudden. LeVar Burton just did one of these, you know, went off on Bill for being a very bad person for asking him that question, which whatever the question was, it was the worst question in the world. O'Reilly, to his credit, just sat there, kind of, he knew what was going on. He just kind of smiled and brushed LeVar Burton off. LeVar Burton was one very unhappy dude that Bill O'Reilly was not as acquiescent to him as white people are supposed to be to black people. Anyway, got, so it must, this thing must have been like preying on LeVar Burton's mind because he made a, I think there's more than one of these. He made a whole bunch of videos, YouTube videos. The topic of the video, at least the one I saw, no, I didn't have enough nerve to look at more than one of these. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. So he comes out and now Mr. LeVar Burton, Jordy LaForge, is going to explain to us how going to the University of Southern California, he became a victim of police brutality. Oh yeah, one thing about when you hear the stories he's going to tell, USC is an island. It's a campus where if you walk off campus, you are in the middle of a very, very dangerous place full of fellas and people who love preying on students from SC. Oh yes, they do. So he's going to make it sound a little bit like when he goes from this fraternity to that little coffee shop, he's going to make it sound like he's walking from Beverly Hills to, uh, you know, whatever. No, this is not Beverly Hills. This is the hood. This is most one of the most dangerous sections of the hood. And Mr. LaForge somehow manages to forget that. 
I'd like to tell you a story about a young black man who moved to Los Angeles many years ago. He came to attend the University of Southern California on a full scholarship and during his freshman year took an efficiency apartment. For the fall semester of his sophomore year at USC and still without a car, knowing he needed to be much closer to campus, he answered an ad placed by the Jewish fraternity house, Sigma Alpha Mu. As the frat house tended to be noisy into the evening, his habit became to do most of his studying in the overnight hours between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. And like most 19-year-olds, he was also hungry after studying, so he would head east on 28th Street, turn right on Figueroa, where his destination, a few blocks down, was the Vagabond Motor Hotel and Coffee Shop. The Row at USC is home to the sons and daughters of some of the most wealthy and influential families in America, and the Los Angeles Police Department has had a long-standing presence there. For the first six weeks of that September term, this young man was stopped almost nightly by the LAPD, always answering the description of someone stealing car stereos in the area. Night after night, he respectfully handed over the student ID he never left home without. With his current address printed plainly on his ID, he had the necessary proof that he did indeed live on the row. One night, he was walking and seemingly from nowhere, his path was cut off by an LAPD cruiser. The doors fly open and suddenly, he is staring down the barrel of a shotgun at point-blank range. Once again, he fit the description of someone wanted by law enforcement for committing crimes in the neighborhood. What happened next became a defining moment in his life. He recognized the officer who was demanding to see his identification. He had been detained by this very same cop only a few nights before and the week before that. And a dawning realization hit him that they didn't see him at all. They only saw the color of his skin, and to them, that meant he didn't belong there. I'm LeVar Burton, and that's my story. This kind of reminded me of that Kamala Harris thing that went out at the, she put out into the world, and it hit with a thud. It didn't bounce anywhere. Remember that? She was having some kind of debate with Biden, and Biden, she reminded people that Biden was against busing, when he, and he was a younger man. And then she talked about this busing story from the 70s and maybe, who knows, and, you know, how this and that. And then at the end of the story, it wasn't even a particularly sad story. She looked at the camera and said, I was that little girl. Didn't even matter that much. Even though the story was kind of mild, people figured out, like, within the next couple of days, none of it was true. And there's Jordy LaForge talking about having a shotgun shoved in his face because some reason, for some reason, the cops who patrol South Central LA, the campus, in and around the campus of USC, for some reason, the cops have this crazy impression that the fellas are up to no good around there. Yeah. One thing about it, he said about SC is true. Lots of rich kids go to that school. They drive their Beamers. They drive their whatever. Everybody, you know, if you're not paying for it, maybe you're not going to be as careful about locking it up or setting the alarm. Lots of break-ins, lots of ro robberies, lots of muggings. Who's doing it, Jordy? Take your visor off for one minute. 
Tell me who's responsible for the vast majority of crime in and around the University of Southern California. Think it's those white rich kids? Guess Jordy's not going to answer us here. Come to the conclusion that media collusion is wrapped up in denial and deceit and delusion. It can't be true. Come on and get a clue. Cause everybody knows white people do it too. I really like to play the knockout game or leave your store in total disarray, disarray. Don't hassle me, cause all your stuff is for free. I didn't do nothing anyway. Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team. Don't report random argy-bargy that you see on TV. Cause you know through and through, all you're gonna do is make the black kids angry. It's not about violence, it's just a fight. Bella's blowing off a little steam. Some midnight basketball will be just fine in the middle of our quiet, safe community. Always getting picked on for no reason whatsoever That explains everything now until forever It really doesn't matter what happened to you Cause what they said I did, I didn't do Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team Talk about the violent fellas You know, one thing I don't like doing around here, I don't like beating up on the victims. But the more we know about the level of black crime, violence, mayhem, destruction, confusion, the more we know about that, the harder it is to let some people off the hook when they put themselves in that situation. We're going to look at something in New Orleans and we're going to go up to Seattle Two different cities demographically, but as far as the white people volunteering for poor treatment, oh, they are tw- they are twins. Let's start off in New Orleans. But now one woman says burglars have not only targeted her car, but her home more than once. Amanda Roberts joins us with more. Lee and Shelley, one woman says she is at her breaking point now after shocking video shows how burglars continue to break into her home. A rash of car break-ins across the city have many households living on edge. This time, I guess, we're told by the police that they were looking for um, guns, but they just, it's a smash smash and grab situation. And residents say they're no longer going to accept the answer, this is the price of living in New Orleans. And it's just so frustrating that there doesn't seem to be any increased police presence here. Um, We all report it. But one woman says because of the repeated break-ins at her Treme home and a stolen van, she's not only living in fear, but worries the suspected burglars will grow even more brazen. Because at the point, what else can I do but shrug my shoulders and laugh? I don't know at this point what else. 
Like, what else is there? Are they going to burn the house down? Shocking videos show how since October, burglars continued to break into Robin Cates' home, stealing thousands of dollars, firearms, and other items. Burglars that Cates believes she's identified after the multiple incidents. My other neighbor said is what they do is watch and try and get your door code. And at first I'm like, okay, it's opportunistic, but for them, just they're so brazen because they know I know who it is and the police haven't done anything, so... They just keep coming back. She says now if she can help it, she'll stay somewhere else. <laughs> Living in fear all the time. But is already making plans to move and sell the house she's lived in for years. Even if I don't expect to see any of this returned, I would like justice because they're going to be emboldened and just continue to do it again. Kate says after repeated calls to police with no arrest, she now fears for her safety and when they'll strike again. I shouldn't have to feel, and I do already look at it with enough fault, but I shouldn't have to feel like, oh, like I'm victim blaming myself for something that shouldn't happen and something that certainly shouldn't happen more than once or twice. Okay, so you see the inside of this house that this woman that was, woman's house was burglarized. She looks like she's 30, 35, in her 30s. Uh, she looks like she takes care of herself, a pretty woman. But one thing that she is that she's not entitled to be is she's not entitled to be surprised. Neither is the other woman that we talked to. I talked about her car. She's not entitled to be surprised either. Anybody who follows anything in New Orleans knows that black criminality and violence, dysfunction, mayhem, chaos, that has been elevated way out of the realm of criminality and it's been elevated up to some kind of position of, I don't know, glorification? Oh, that's just Nolens. I mean, the woman won the Pulitzer Prize last year for writing a book about what happened after the hurricane. Her family had this house. Good part of the book was just spent bitching about white people. Not a single word about all the black people who were roaming through New Orleans, looting, robbing, killing. There and at the the, the um, Superdome. And so when you live in New Orleans, you've already made your deal with the devil. You've already, you've already in your mind agreed with yourself that you're going to ignore all this black crime and violence. You are down with the cause. So when you hear the people running for mayor and the only thing they disagree with, with is, well, it's exactly how much are black people oppressed and exactly how much do white people suck for doing it when the only thing they're talking about is criminal justice reform and why are we putting these angels in jail when they belong back on the streets? And when you ignore the stories of all the tourists that leave, leave uh, the French Quarter when they go, when they, you know, when they go into the no-go zone, which is, you know, 10 yards, 20 yards, 50 yards off of the French Quarter, and no one ever sees them alive again. If you ignore all these stories, if you ignore the stories about city council people who are constantly telling you that's not important, people around the police department telling you you got it wrong, that's just your white fear. We're not going to be ruled by fear around here. What am, What are we on this platform supposed to do for you that you won't do for yourself. New Orleans, it's that one one thing, that one um, story was set in a part of town called Treme. That was an HBO show for a couple of years. And it was all about black people and white people, and they're all sitting down there. I mean, whatever you, all they do, and listen, all they do in New Orleans, apparently, is just sit around drinking long neck beers, 
dancing when you get drunk enough. You dance to a little bit of Zydeco and you go over and have a nice conversation with some friendly black person and everybody's everybody's all getting along together. One big piece of fiction. White people are targets in New Orleans. Tourists are targets in New Orleans. How many of those stories have we done here? A lot. Teacher leaving the French Quarter, attacked by a whole bunch of fellas. She looked up. The guy looked up and he recognized his students. Yeah, the students he thought he was okay with. Thought he had been giving extra help to. The former Tulane student who comes back to New Orleans for a bachelor party. This kid had just graduated with like a degree in engineering. He's going to work for his dad's construction firm. His whole life is right there in front of him. And it looks pretty damn good. Oh yeah, he's dead. People getting pulled out of cars, killed. Yeah, that's New Orleans. Everybody's okay with that. Everybody's okay with finding the fellas, slapping them on the wrist, making them promise not to do, you know, and do it again, and shooing them back into the streets. Oh yeah, criminal justice reform has been a thing in New Orleans almost as long as the hurricanes at Pat O'Brien's. Hey, let's head up to Seattle here. But before we do that, let's do our ID thing. Uh, This is Colin Flaherty. I'm the author of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Amazon took it down for a couple months, found another publisher. He published it on on Lulu, lulu lulu.com. Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Easy to find. Working on the audiobook. The ebook is on smashwords.com. Getting a lot of re- getting a lot of good reaction to the audiobook of White Girl Bleed a lot. A lot of people are listening to that. I'm an audiobook person now, almost exclusively as well. So anyway, so what we do here is we document this black crime and violence, and we document how much denial, deceit, and delusion there is surrounding it to enable it. And we do that all without racism, without rancor, without apology every day. We're just chipping away at this mountain of denial, deceit, and delusion. Just like you saw down there in New Orleans. Colin, that's a New Orleans thing you wouldn't understand. How about a long neck beer? How about a beer and a long neck bottle, Colin? And some crawdads spread out on some newspaper. That's what we do down here. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so over that little fairy tale of New Orleans. Bad business going on all over the state. Baton Rouge. Okay, let's go up to Seattle. I never would have taken her there. I may be a socialist, but I'm not a lunatic. So whatever New Orleans is, 40, 50% black, maybe more, 60% black. Seattle's like 7% black. But Seattle reminds me a lot of other white towns, especially Minneapolis. Where about 10, 20 years ago, everybody, maybe even more people decided, you know, all these white people who live there, they just decided they were going to be down with the cause of black victimization and white racism. And they weren't going to, you know, they weren't going to participate in it. They were going to fight it. They were going to like, they knew that the only reason black people were committing crimes was because of white racism and so why would you want to put a criminal in jail? Why would you even want to, the, the victim, so the black people are the real victims, and why would you want to put the victim in jail? The predators belong in jail, not the victims. Why would you even want to arrest them? We've done tons of stories about Minneapolis. Whether it's a thousand fellas rampaging down the streets, you know, destroying property, 
or just lots and lots of other smaller argy-bargy. I did a story about in, in Minneapolis. It was about a beverage cart. 20 black, okay, here's what a beverage cart is. And the crux of the story is they're hard to describe. Picture somebody driving a bicycle attached to the bike is some kind of cart. And the thing has seat, seats on it, like 10, you know, say there's got like seven or eight seats on each, each side. So you're in some kind of contraption with a canopy with eight seats one side, eight seats the other side. You're basically looking at the, the people across from you. And this cart has beer and Mai Tais and mixed drinks. And you drive around in like a bike. And everybody has, you know, it's a white thing. Everybody has a good old time doing a little bit of drinking, contemplating how nice they, nice of a place they live in. Anyway, so these guys do that. 20 fellas come along, beat the piss out of them, laughing, laughing, laughing. And they take off with a lot of, you know, a lot of free stuff. So I did the story. Salon Magazine got a hold of it, and they said, man, look at this. Colin Flaherty, the bad guy of all time, he just wrote a story about beverage carts in Minneapolis. I just checked. There's no such thing as beverage carts in Minneapolis. Well, if you look it up, and they're easy to find, you'll see exactly if you Google, like, beverage carts doesn't even have to be Minneapolis. They're a thing. So the guy wrote, I don't know, a long story about how everything I ever thought in my entire life was 100% wrong. Then the comments started coming in. And the comments, people from Minneapolis were going, hey, you know what? My favorite one was, hey, I don't have any time for these right-wing SOBs either. I just don't. I don't like any of them. But what Colin said was true. I mean, there's a lot of black and white crime in this country. So I live in this town. I think it was Champaign, Illinois, the guy I was writing from. He writes, he goes, yeah, we have it in this town, black people in the wintertime. They go around hunting white people. They call it polar bear hunting. Got so bad, they got our weatherman. That's the first time I ever heard of polar bear hunting. Turns out that's a thing. I never had that in my childhood. And lots of other people, like they just said the same thing. I was like, yeah, I don't like these big bad conservatives either, but this happened to me. That happened to me. I live in Minneapolis. Yeah, I've been on that beverage cart. I don't know what your problem is. Anyway, so Minneapolis has this thing going on where they're just absolutely determined to be in denial, deceit, and delusion about black crime. I remember I did a bunch of stories about there were 20 or 30 examples within like a month of fellas just rampaging down the streets of downtown Minneapolis. They were attacking people, knocking people off their bikes. One guy had a brain injury, lost his short-term memory. They were going to a place called Nicolette Mall, doing the same thing up there. Just happening over and over and over. And every night, the reporters would look in the camera and go, we just can't figure out what's going on here. Got the reporter from the, the big shot reporter from the Star Tribune gets in there. He goes, I just, you know, we can't find a pattern. I mean, these are fellas, large groups of fellas doing this on the streets of downtown Minneapolis. And that's the, and I, and, and I remember when I went on the, uh, the Mike Williams show in Minneapolis, same deal. It was like, I was on the air for like 20 minutes, giving him time, dates, places. This happened, that happened, this happened, that happened. Mike was very polite, but at the same time, he was a little bit skeptical because that was not his Minneapolis. His Minneapolis was a nice, quiet, fun, interesting place 
where everybody got along. And the producer came in, started calling. When I got off the air, the producer came in and said, I'm not buying any of that crap. And then the callers came in, one after another. Mother comes in and goes, hey, I'm the, you know, my mom, this happened to, you know, all these black people beat up my son. The cops wouldn't help. The people with the video wouldn't give it to me. It's a nightmare down there. A couple weeks, and this, this went on for like an hour. A couple weeks later, big story in the Minneapolis paper, a guy who worked at that radio station. I think he jog, used to jog to work, you know, for the morning show. Producer, you got to get to work pretty early for these things. So he's out there jogging to work at like three or four in the morning. Carload of fellas come up, beat the piss out of him, put him in the hospital. You'll find things a bit different from when you left. That's Minneapolis, of course. But and and you know, the mayor's down with it, the police chief's down with it, the reporters are down with it. St. Patrick's Day just a couple of years ago. They had a Saint. They have a Saint Pat. Believe it or not, they have a Saint Patrick's Day parade. I don't know how many people are in this thing. A couple of hundred, maybe, you know, it's hard to get people to do the parade thing anymore. A couple hundred white people walking up and down the parade. One group, one one of the little groups in the parade was like, they had like the grandfather, the father, and the kid. At least three generations. 75 to 100 black people rampaged through the parade like a sheep, like a wolf running through a pen of sheep, beating the piss out of white people, including all three members of that generation. Of white people. Now, here's where it gets weird. The guy, the newspaper columnist, every town has like one, usually has one columnist, right? What he says goes. I don't like the way that, you know, that stoplight looks down at 7th and, uh, you know, Jackson Street. We got to make it kind of more candy cane red instead of just regular red. And all of a sudden, everybody at City Hall is going, oh my God, John wants to, you know, candy cane red. Dial 911, get that light changed. So the people that got beat up, people who were attacked by the fellas on St. Patrick's Day at the parade, they call them up and they go, hey, did you know this happened? And this guy, the columnist for the paper, who was officially in charge of the denial, deceit, and delusion for the entire region for not letting people know about this large-scale up, these large and small-scale episodes of black violence in Minneapolis, he wrote a big column going, hey, how come nobody told us? Didn't even know this was happening. Well, we can't, well, we can't let that happen. Not on my watch. You fool. It, you knew it was happening. Your colleagues knew it was happening. Your editor, your publisher, they all knew it was happening. And they just stood by and watched because they knew that all the, white, all the black violence in Minneapolis was caused by white racism. And, pov- and, you know, and the other million excuses. All the criminals were victims, really. Why are we putting victims in jail? They were down with criminal justice reform long before anybody around here was. So now let's go out to Seattle. Same thing, same kind of mojo vibe in Seattle as it is in Minneapolis. Maybe there's a little, maybe it's a little funkier. Maybe there's a little more money in Seattle. You got Microsoft out there. You got a big high-tech thing going on out there. Boeing is out there. But the people who run that city council, oh no, they are not down with the cops. They are not down with law enforcement. They are totally down with the fact that anybody, any fella going around shooting the downtown up, well, that's just a fella that we have failed. And so finally... 
something ha something happened. You'll hear about it in a minute, a couple weeks ago, and everybody's all pissed off. But here's the thing. You're a business owner in Minneapolis, in, in Seattle. You own a business there. You didn't know this was happening or did you know it was happening, but you just didn't get pissed off until it touched your life? Let's, you know, these two stories, they have such different takes on what's happening in Seattle. Let's hear them both. I'll break it up in the middle. Answer to us. Business owners and those who live in downtown Seattle letting lawmakers know how they feel about safety downtown. It's getting worse. It's not getting better. And people are leaving Seattle. It was a packed city council meeting today. People are angry over ongoing crime issues that came to a head last week after that deadly shootout at 3rd and Pine. The police chief promised more resources to address the problem. Come with Steve McCarran is live downtown now with a look at what's being done. Steve? Mary, Police Chief Carmen Best says this mobile police precinct parked right here along 3rd Avenue in the Pike Pine Corridor is just one of the steps that her department has taken since that deadly shootout last Wednesday. But business owners, people who live nearby, say they are fed up with the ongoing drug activity and violence here. I do not feel safe in the city in which I live in. They stepped up to the microphone, frustrated and wanting answers. How long will it take us to repair our reputation as a city? And at what price? Dozens fill the council chambers fed up with drugs and ongoing violence near the same corner where one person was killed and seven others hurt during a shootout last Wednesday, including a nine-year-old boy. My hope if anything positive comes out of the horrific events of last week, it's that it serves as a wake-up call. Police Chief Carmen Best tried to assure them and a city council committee her department is taking action. And we're going to take every effort to make sure that we keep this city safe. Just within the last few days, Best says more resources, including officers on foot and on bikes, have been assigned to the downtown core. Her department is also working with private building security in the area to identify problems as police try to track down those responsible for several recent shootings. Getting these dangerous individuals off the street immediately makes everyone safer. But those who live and work here say what they're seeing isn't enough, even with reduced crime rates. And an overall 5% decrease in major crime. I've heard this I've heard the statements before. They argue arrests mean little when prosecutors can't put offenders behind bars and keep them there. One suspect from the recent deadly shootout has 44 arrests on his record, the other 21. I'm just asking that you reconsider the, any, whatever policy that you have in place for, for arresting people and then letting them out because I think it's a failed experiment. As this bus moves out of the way here, you can see some of those extra police resources that have been brought in uh, with their bikes uh, right in front of the empty storefront there. Several people who work in the business community said today during that meeting they've seen sales drop because of the ongoing issues here in the downtown core. Chief Best said she knows her department's efforts here cannot be short term, that sustainability will be key. Live in downtown Seattle, Steve McCarran, Come on, dude. Steve, thank you. Seattle police tell us that in 2009, as you heard the chief mention briefly, violent crime was down 3% overall across the city. The West Precinct, which includes Pioneer Square, North Soto, Queen Anne, and downtown, saw a 3% increase in reported violent crimes. The downtown core, which includes the Pike Pine Corridor, saw a 5% decrease in reported violent crime. Harborview Medical Center says two of the eight people shot in last week's deadly shooting are still in the hospital. A 32-year-old man is in satisfactory condition tonight, and a 55-year-old woman remains in intensive care. Seattle Police
Police are still looking for two of the three alleged shooters, William Tolliver and Marquise Tolbert. If you see them, call 911. And the continued violence on 3rd is the topic of a Como News Town Hall this week. We hope you can join us tomorrow at 2 p.m. for Operation Crime and Justice, Enough is Enough. You know, the stuff about Seattle is easy to find. My favorite story about Seattle is they have a courthouse, downtown Seattle. I think it's called the King County Courthouse. And people who go in and out of the courthouse for a couple years now have been complaining to no avail that they have been the victims of assaults from homeless people and black people and homeless black people. They're assaulting them right near the courthouse. So you got all these deputies, you got all these district attorneys, you got the top law enforcement people in that whole area right there. And they cannot even protect themselves. And now we've got these business people who are this. I like the second story you're going to hear, hear about Seattle because the business people are a little more vociferous about it. But at the same time, these are smart people. You're trying to tell me you didn't know anything about it. You didn't know it that you didn't know when you were supporting all these the people running for office when they talked about criminal justice reform, when they talked about putting Black Lives Matter in the Seattle schools on a regular basis. You didn't, and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. When they talked about not arresting people, you know, small crimes. Yeah, getting punched in the face is a small crime. When you saw that, you just thought, hey, you know what? Not that big of a deal. You didn't think it was going to grow. You didn't think it was going to touch your house. Guess what? It's touching your house. And now guess what? It's too late for you. Lost hope and rising frustration tonight for citizens fed up over what feels like an epidemic of downtown Seattle crime. Good evening, I'm Aliana Gomez. And I'm Jamie Tompkins. Dozens of people crowded a meeting of the Seattle City Council today to let leaders know that they've heard enough talk. They want action. Many say last week's shootout at 3rd and Pine was really just the last straw. Gunfire killed one person and injured seven others after an argument exploded with violent consequences outside of the McDonald's. Tonight one suspect is behind bars, but two others are still on the run. Police are looking for William Tolliver and Marquise Tolbert. They are considered armed and dangerous. Q13's Hannah Kim was at City Hall today, and Hannah, really, people made it clear they want to see results, and they want to see them now. Yeah, Jamie and Aliana, yes, so many people are furious, and they did not hold back in front of council members and police chief Carmen Best today. At the heart of the frustration is how the city and county is dealing with repeat criminals. Take, for example, the two suspects wanted in the mass shooting. Between the two men, they have more than 60 arrests, and many of those cases ending up in the King County Prosecutor's Office. Our agenda for today? How people are feeling about downtown Seattle safety. We are losing hope. Boiling down to this packed council chamber. Dozens signed up to speak, but the two minutes allotted to each citizen barely scratching the surface of their frustrations. I don't want to live in a city surrounded by filth and criminals and drug addict. Last week's mass shooting on 3rd and Pine is just one of many incidents over the years driving downtown residents and business owners over the edge. I think the sense of urgency is the most important element today because we heard this before. I used to tell my kids nothing good happens after midnight in downtown Seattle. Now it's day or night. Here. 
even if you don't live near Third Avenue. 42 metro routes carry about 180,000 passengers each weekday through that area. It's criminal to make someone wait for a bus on Third Avenue. That's insane. Today, Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best validating all the concerns. I just want you to know that you're being heard and these issues are very, very important to us. But this crowd's patience has run out. Across the city in 2019, we saw a 3% decrease in violent crime, a 5% decrease in property crime, and an overall 5% decrease in major crime. I've heard this, I've heard the statements before. I need, I need please, silence. Please, please allow me to finish. People here say their experiences paint a different picture. From random assaults, harassment, public defecation to open drug use becoming an everyday occurrence in the city. People are leaving Seattle. We have data to show they are not renewing their leases. Um, their clients and customers don't feel safe. Property manager Sabrina Villanueva sharing this video from Insights Typology Tees, a business on 4th Avenue. A woman last week punches an employee several times. The owner of the store says the suspect was incoherent and harassing customers. When the employee eventually asked the woman to leave, that's when she started throwing punches. They deal with this every single day. It's getting worse. It's not getting better. And many say that's because the city and county's judicial system is not holding repeat offenders accountable. We don't say no to bad behavior, okay? We have to, as a culture, as a community, say no to bad behavior. Now, what we just showed you, business owners say, is now common in downtown Seattle. So I wanted to follow up on that latest assault. Was the suspect charge. The answer tonight is no. The city attorney's office says they're still waiting for more information from SPD. This despite the fact that there's video as well as a positive ID on that suspect. But the city attorney's office telling me that it um, has to do with something to do with the way the information was transmitted to them and they need more evidence to, you know, continue this case. So they say that they will follow up on this case tomorrow. SPD, I also checked in with them to see what happened here. They're telling me that that they did refer this case to mental health courts. So this case will be, uh, is, you know, to be continued and we're going to follow up. Yeah, but, you know, the frustration, it is so clear. I mean, the day after the shooting, we were on the air that day. We heard from people on the yeah. streets who live in the area who say they're just fed up with this. But then the next day I went out there and talked to business owners. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said they're reporting these crimes. They're on top of these crimes. They're trying to keep their customers and their employees safe. Business, and their businesses yeah. are dying. Yeah, It sounds like a broken record because they've been saying this for years. And today you could just see people frustration. It yeah. was very viable. What they want are solutions. So they want more jail time for violent offenders. They also want mental health treatment and drug treatment for other people. At one point, though, when Councilmember Lisa Herbold was talking about how the mass shooting suspects, some of them did not, a lot of the cases did not go through the city attorney's office, but instead went to the King County Prosecutor's mm -hmm. Office, you heard the crowd and they were so angry with that answer because, again, they just want solutions. They don't want statistics and they don't want other details that are not important. And they don't want to be pushed off to another department either exactly all right here. okay so no patience no tolerance no empathy for the people of seattle who 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 elected a whole bunch of people to turn their town into some big liberal experiment about how they are morally superior to the rest of us and morally superior people don't go around arresting black people and sticking them in jail just like you live in some crazy you know, backwater like Chicago. No, you don't do that. Not in Seattle. And now chickens have come home to roost. You know, one of the things you learn when you're a long distance runner, I've done a little bit of that in my life, 
you learn that, you know, you got to stay hydrated because if you're out there running, even in like 75, 80 degree weather, if it's sunny out, when you're running, if you start to feel weak and you look up and you see spots in front of your eyes, then then that means you should have been drinking something 15 minutes ago. So now all the people in Seattle are getting sunstroke. They thought they could avoid the consequences of all these stupid ideas they came up with. And now they're, fig- now they're starting to learn, oh no, the chickens are coming home to roost on me. What are we going to do? There's nothing you can do. Nothing that doesn't take a long time. And your business, the success or failure of your business will be decided long before they figure out what to do with the fellas tearing up downtown Seattle and lots of places around Seattle. Well, yeah, your business will be there or not long before that happens. Meanwhile, around the rest of the country, again, everybody's down with the cause. Everybody's, you know, turning up the volume on black victimization, white racism. The people speaking with the biggest megaphone right now, you're going to hear some of this stuff over the weekend. If you watch the Super Bowl, yeah, I may not be able to make that particular television viewing engagement. But the NFL, it was about, it was about a year ago when they made a settlement with the players. You remember that settlement? We've talked about it here. They met a settlement. The NFL gave the Players Association and, uh, roughly $100 million. That means you would give, the, you give one player in each one of the, their towns, you gave him a chunk of money, three, four, five million dollars $5 million. He would go out and hiring some community, active, community organizers. Next thing you know, they're going to the state capitol, talking about criminal justice reform, the whole thing. So one of the things they did with everybody's making videos. Now, here's a video... It's got a lot of traction, a lot of traction. I don't know if they're going to play this video on Sunday or not at the Super Bowl. They're going to play one of these videos where it's all about how cops are messing with black people and we need more criminal justice reform, you know, just like they have in Seattle and Minnesota. We need more of that because everybody knows cops don't do anything but go around the country messing with black people for no reason whatsoever. Hey, you ever heard of that dude on Star Trek by the name of Jordy LaForge? Look at him. He traveled the universe. The only people that messed with him were, you know, superpower, super powerful aliens from another world. Even the, co- the cops didn't mess with Jordy, but now in today they mess with everybody, including Jordy LaForge. So NBC's all fired up about this commercial. But you know what this commercial needs? This commercial needs a dose of reality. So let's hear a little bit of the commercial, a little bit of the MP- NBC story, and then let's run three stories that I've done over the last couple of years, almost at random. I just picked them off my hard drive and it said, well, the three stories are about cops being killed by fellas. And so for any story you tell me about a cop getting into some argy-bargy with a fella where the fella comes out on the wrong end, most of the time, it is not, it is a good shoot. But for every one shoot you give me where maybe it's not a good shoot, I will give you a hundred of these stories where a cop put his life on the line and lost his life because of the enormous level of black violence, scorn, and hatred directed at them. Let's go out to NBC. Yeah, I'll never forget that night. My wife walks up after the game. He told me that my cousin Corey had been killed. In a new attention-grabbing PSA. All you hear from there is three shots. 
Former NFL star wide receiver Anquan Bolden recalls the 2015 death of his cousin Corey Jones. I need to know why. Why is my son gone today? Why? The 31 year old musician was killed by a plainclothes police officer after his car broke down on the side of a Florida interstate late one night. That officer was later convicted of attempted murder and manslaughter. I think far too long we've avoided the conversation. And I think by avoiding that conversation, we are where we are now. But I think anytime you bring a situation to light, you have the ability to deal with it. Tough times don't last, tough people do. Now the NFL unveiling an entire series of ads called Inspire Change. I want to use my platform to speak out for people who can't speak out for themselves. Addressing a host of issues affecting disadvantaged and largely minority populations. Public reaction to the campaign has been swift and incredibly split. Some fans saying this was such a powerful PSA and a tough subject handled in a classy and very effective way. Others criticizing what they see as hypocrisy. This is so fake on every level. Why wasn't Kaepernick 7 kneeling a part of this commercial if this is a topic that you truly care about? That reference to former 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who set off a national firestorm when he took a knee during the national anthem in 2016, to protest social injustice and police brutality. Did the NFL handle it right initially? I don't think so. Everyone should stand for the national anthem. Overnight, the NFL telling NBC News in a statement, we are aware of the challenges we faced over the last few years. Adding, this PSA is a signature spot we hope will really bring clarity to what social justice is and how committed NFL players are to these issues. But I do applaud the NFL for taking a stand and listening to the players and trying to address it. The league now trying to advance the ball on a delicate topic. For today, Sam Brock, NBC News. All right, let's just blast through these four clips here, including my favorite clip or the most edifying clip we've ever seen on this channel. So edifying, it ran once, then they took it down. Luckily, I had kind of a bastardized version of it. And what you're going to hear on one of these clips is a couple of cops go to a grocery store, chain store, a chain store, drug store in New Jersey. Turns out the guy that is there, he's, 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 his plan is to ambush them. So he commits some kind of small crime in the drug store in order to draw the cops there. Once the cops get there, pulls out a gun and kills one, the other cop kills him. Okay, that's something that happens a lot. Here's where it got crazy. The guy's wife goes to the memorial. Of course, there's a memorial for him, not for the cop. There's a memorial for the cop killer in Jersey City, New Jersey. And the wife showed up, started complaining that her the cops never should have shot her angel husband, even though he just killed a cop. And she said, the, the only thing I don't like about what my husband did he should have shot more cops. Blow through these. So that's our Super Bowl Sunday roundup. Again, I will not be eating guacamole in front of somebody's television set on Sunday cheering on whoever the hell is playing. Done with those clowns. 
No, and I'm not like the great Willie Shields who loves the Philadelphia Eagles. And, you know, as soon as the Eagles get eliminated from the playoffs, he'll go forward, come forward and go, I'm done with the NFL. No, I'm done. Everybody goes, man, you're just done until next fall. That's all. As long as they hate cops, I won't have anything to do with them. You know, maybe Pete Buttigieg, maybe he would have a handle on this. Maybe he'd have a way to figure this out. He can get some of his staffers, go into an NFL locker room, ask the white players, the minority players, if they've ever been, you know, the the top, the you know, ever been tarred with microaggressions where the black players would be asking the white players simple questions about how they grew up or what it's like to be white. Oh no, that's a microaggression, as we learned yesterday from that dude in India who did a podcast called Racist Sandwich. Now he's all bummed out because nobody wants to listen to his podcast about white racism against the schmucks. Staff members of color. Schmucks. And so when you, if you happen to be around some people and this commercial comes on, it's going to be up to you what you are going to say. I don't suggest making a big, you know, making a big uh, rumble out of it. But if you came out and said, listen, a lot, of co- a lot more cops are killed unjustly by black people than black people killed by cops unjustly, and you took a bet saying the ratio is 100 to 1, you could win that bet. You know, that's the only way. I find that really concentrates people when they're saying stupid things. You just offer to bet them five bucks. And they know that they're going to lose, you know, losing the five bucks is not an issue, but the idea that you're going to be tramping around the party, waving $5 in the air, pointing to the jerk you just took the money from, they don't want that. So offering to bet somebody on a pure question of fact is a good way to shut up the trolls. And that's a good way for everybody else around you to know who's willing to back up what they say and who's going to shut up when confronted with the facts. And who knows, maybe someday that kind of approach, the facts, maybe that'll stop making the black kids angry. Talk to you Monday. This morning I got a call from one of my readers who wanted to know if I saw this video. The video was a family who was very upset that a police officer was dead. A member of their family killed the police officer. And I said, oh, you must be talking about uh, the case in Indianapolis just a couple of, couple of weeks ago where um, a guy was walking around with an AK-47 uh, a felon in a dark alley. They stopped the car. Uh, the guy sh- started shooting at the cops. He killed a cop. We'll have that clip. And he said, no, no, not that one, Colin. I said, oh, you must be talking about the one down in North Carolina where the mayor canceled a public memorial for a cop killed in a line of duty. And instead, 
the mayor went to the funeral of the person who killed the cop. He said, no, 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 no. Not that one, Colin. I said, well, I've got, a, I've got more than a dozen, I've got dozens of videos where murderers, the families of murderers in court are sneering, harassing, taunting the family of the murder victim. I said, no, not that one, Colin. If you hear some thunder, I'm out in my back porch and uh, it's thundering. He said, no, and then they, so then, they, then they sent me a link to this video that has since been removed. I tried to grab it, but I, I grabbed what, the best I could. Maybe they'll put it back on. It's from Channel 12 in, um, in, in, in New Jersey, Jersey City. Why don't we just go right to the clip, and uh, you might want to even play it back twice so you can kind of hear exactly what the person's saying. Then we'll go to the other two, and I'll see you on the other end. I also spoke with Campbell's wife, and her comments were nothing short of shocking. Oh no, he should have took more with him if that's the case. That's how I feel. That's, that's God forgive me, but that's how I feel. Yeah. If that's the case, he should have took more with him. If they was going to stand over my husband and shoot him like a dog, he should have took all of them out, and that's how I feel. Angeline Campbell said repeatedly that her husband didn't go nearly far enough in a shooting rampage that killed rookie cop Melvin Santiago standing next to an impromptu street memorial to the father of their six-year-old daughter. She expressed little sympathy for the murdered officer or his grieving family. Ms. Campbell also had no sense as to what prompted the 27-year-old ex-convict to commit an apparent premeditated attack on unsuspecting cops. Did he give you any indication uh, going into this as to what No, I was asleep. I was asleep. I was asleep. I was asleep. Sorry for the officer's family. That's, you know, whatever. Ms. Campbell echoed the anti-cop mentality of many we spoke with in that crime-ridden neighborhood today. Law enforcement officials say Officer Santiago was committed to serving the people of the 4th District, the most dangerous in Jersey City. So dangerous, in fact, that Walgreens security guard Pierre Monsanto felt compelled to carry a handgun at work. He told News 12 New Jersey that Lawrence Campbell punched him twice in the face before grabbing his gun and then opening fire on police. He hit me right here, right there, then. Oh, he punched you? Yeah. And then what, he grabbed your gun? Yes. What kind of gun did you have? 45. 45 caliber? But your license to carry it? Yeah. What was this guy's mental state when he came in? Did he look like he was high on drugs? Did he look crazy? I don't know. What did he say? No, no, he just asked me, he, he want, he want to get uh, some, some cut. Uh-huh. I see, I see the cut is right here. Now, it's worth noting that we were besieged, flooded with calls from police officers furious that we would give media coverage to the life of a cop killer. It's understandable. We decided to air it because it's important to shine a light on this anti-cop mentality that has so contaminated America's inner cities. This same sick, perverse line of thinking is evident from Jersey City to Newark and Patterson to Trenton. It has made the police officer's job impossible, and it has got to stop. The underlying cause for all of this, of course, young black men growing up without fathers. Unfortunately, no one in the news media has the courage to touch that subject. Rick? Wow, where'd this guy come from? Somebody sent him a copy of White Girl Bleed a lot. And, of course, here's a picture of the memorial to the cop killer. Lots of well wishes, lots of fond memories of what a great guy he was. Um, still trying to track down the picture of the memorial to the dead cop. 
I'll have to get back to you on that one. Hey, why don't we head down to uh, North Carolina, where this guy on the right, I won't even mention his name, he, uh, he killed uh, the police officer on the left. This is the one where the cop, uh, um, where the mayor uh, canceled the public ceremony. And here's what the people in that town had to say. I went as far as to say you're a Christian because you went to a cop killer's funeral is a huge disgrace to every man slash woman of the blue. You owe an apology to everyone, but I'm also aware we're not going to get it. There's a void in leadership right now, and the city can do better than this. I will echo that quote, Mr. Mayor. Resign. Okay, let's head over to Minneapolis, uh, to Indianapolis, uh, to hear another story. Officer Wren is speaking out about the shooting. His aunt, cousins, and his children's grandmother all spoke to 24-Hour News 8's Jessica Smith this afternoon. She joins us now in the newsroom with their take on last night's tragedy. Yes, the family is still struggling to accept that Davis Jr. could be a part of something like this. He's the father of four children, ranging in age from 2 to 10 years old. Their family has had a long, tense history with Indianapolis police officers. You don't know what he's been through with IPD. We do. He's scarred for life. The Davis family's history with police began with Major Davis Sr. He served at least three years on a drug conviction and was arrested again in 2003 for public intoxication. He died of a heart attack in police custody when Davis Jr. was just a young teen. The coroner said officers were not at fault, but still the family holds police responsible. He wasn't a bad person. His father was killed by IPD. And that is enough to hurt a person and score him for life. Remarkably, one of the officers listed in that 2003 police report is Officer Perry Wren. I imagine he figured they was going to try and kill him. I mean, because look what they did to his father. On Saturday night, the family says they were having a cookout. And next thing I just hear Ray shots and everybody running in the house and everybody just hit the floor. By the time they got outside, they realized those shots were Davis and Officer Wren shooting at each other. Davis had an assault rifle. Major is not a bad person in spite of what happened. Things happen. Now the family is worried about Davis Jr.'s reputation. It's horrible about what took place. But, I mean, I just don't think it's fair for them to keep dragging him through the mud. And again, questioning police tactics. You know, I don't know how the police was shooting. They were, they were you know, they go. If they, I mean, if they could, took out any concern about kids running around, I don't know. There's only one thing this family seems to be sure of. The boy is not a bad person. The family said it's sorry for Officer Wren's family, but they think the tragedy could have been avoided if Officer Wren would have stayed in his car, since he could see Davis had a gun. Live in the newsroom, Jessica Smith, 24. It's been a week since Officer Perry Wren was gunned down in this alley by a man with an AK-47, and it's been a week since there's been outrage in this town, over the suggestion in some quarters. That if Officer Wren knew what was good for him, maybe he should have stayed in his car and not gotten out when he saw there was a man with a gun in this alley. 
Well now it's a week later, IMPD is back at work and some of the officers are posting on Facebook telling the city of Indianapolis this is how we roll. Perry Wren's car was a memorial and now it's a centerpiece for his North District IMPD brothers and sisters to send a message to the people of Indianapolis. North District Lake Shift. We will always get out of our cars. Southeast Middle Shift. We will always get out of our cars. Officers wearing black bands on badges over heavy hearts make a promise. We'll always get out of our car. I will always get out of my car. The men and women on the street echoing the eulogy message delivered by their chief at Perry Wren's funeral on Friday. Perry had many opportunities to work other places, folks, but he chose to work in patrol to make a difference in the field. Again, he was commanded to making this city safer. Every day, Perry got out of his police car. Picking up where Perry Wren left off. We will always get out of our cars. We will always get out of our cars. We'll always get out of our car. I will always get out of my car. Last Saturday night, just a couple hours after Perry Wren was pronounced dead, I asked Public Safety Director Troy Riggs if this town was out of control. He said no. He said as long as the men and women of IMPD keep getting out of their cars and running toward trouble, evil doesn't win. On the north side, Russ McQuaid, Fox 59 News. A few months ago in Wilmington, Delaware, a police officer uh, 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 approached a, uh, a group of black people standing around a car. One of them took out a gun and shot the officer in the face. Oh, he shot him in the arm. He survived. That night, the local newspaper dragged uh, some cameras down there, and they put a microphone in front of some of the local residents who said uh, who, they were they were kind of pissed. They were pissed for two reasons. One, they didn't like that the, the, the neighborhood was kind of taped off and shut down. It's quite an inconvenience to them. But the overwhelming sentiment was that, why are there so many cops here? Why, are there, why is there a helicopter Wilmington is known as a place that has some of the highest per capita shootings in the country. And um, more than one person said, um, you know, the cops, nothing special. They should do this for all the shootings. Here's the punchline. At the next meeting of the city council, several members of the council agreed with the sentiments that the police overreacted to one of their colleagues getting shot in the face. Look, here's the reality in Wilmington, Jersey City, Indianapolis, and lots and lots of other places all over the country. Thugs are more popular than cops. So everybody talks about police community relations. There's not a community relation problem. The reality is People don't like the cops. The former mayor of this town, when he was the mayor, said the cops were an occupying army. He's the general of the damn thing, and that's what he said. Man, I'm having trouble keeping up with all the cop shootings, all the cop killings. We just did a story out of Selma, Alabama. You know, the freedom marchers, all that good stuff. Over the last month or two, there have been seven cops that have been ambushed and shot. I don't think um, I don't think any of them died. Open season on cops in Selma 
right next door to Selma, Alabama, over in Mississippi. We just had two cops died last night. Responded some, they responded to some kind of disturbance with a bunch of the fellas. Pretty soon, the cops were dead. Back to our breaking news and the deaths of two officers in Brookhaven. 16 WAPT Jennifer Lott is live in Brookhaven with what happened. Jennifer? Jewel, it's getting late in the evening now. MBI, ATF, local police left the scene earlier. One officer just pulled back up just a few seconds ago. Things are starting to quiet down here, but take a look at what it was like earlier today here on North 6th Street. Around 5 this morning, two Brookhaven police officers, Corporal Zach Moak and Patrolman James White, were shot and killed while responding to a call in this area. MBI says the suspect, Marquise Aaron Flowers, was wounded. His family tells us he's at UMMC and that they don't believe he's the only suspect. How is he the only suspect and, and he was shot before the police arrived? That's one. Two, there's five people in custody. Cause to me he ain't do no wrong, just shot a cop. Cause to me he ain't do no wrong, just shot a cop. His brother tells us that ATF officer said Flowers was shot before police arrived. The family says they understand the city's grieving right now, but so are they, telling us UMMC made them leave the premises. He says he still doesn't know if his brother is dead or alive. Now, this incident is reminding people of the deadly shooting that took a Lincoln County deputy's life last year. My intentions was to have y'all to kill me. I ran out of bullets. Lincoln County Deputy Donald William Durr was shot in May of 2017. He was one of eight killed when Willie Corey Godbolt went on a shooting rampage in Boca Chitta and Brookhaven. Investigators say Godbolt was angry after his wife wouldn't let him see their children. Godbolt awaits trial in the killing of Durr and the others. So where's Nike in all of this? Can we run a Nike commercial showing Colin Kaepernick saying those cops deserve what they got because cops always picking on black people for no reason whatsoever. Where's Nike? If you believe in something, sometimes you have to give up everything. How's that working out for you, Nike? Is that helping you stop make the black kids angry? I guess we've got a new hero down in Memphis, Tennessee by the name of Brandon Weber. Now the cops say that Brandon is not really a hero because he went down to Mississippi and uh, tried to buy like an Xbox or something during one of these sketchy meetups. The guy showed up, he shot him five times. We don't have any video from Mississippi, but it went down pretty much like this with only a slightly different result since Brandon's victim, even though he was shot five times, lived. This guy up in Gary, Indiana, robbed under identical circumstances, did not. Victim just 16 years old, shot and killed over an Xbox the thieves didn't even get. Police here asking for some help tonight and warning people about selling stuff online. I don't wish this on anybody. His mother still can't believe he's gone. Last night, his father saw Johnny Pelliera shot and killed on this street in Gary. I really hope that whoever did it gets caught, gets found. 
I want my little brother to have justice. He would have been a junior this fall at Merrillville High. Loved video games and cars, especially Trans Am's. Just got his license, and this was going to be his. He was more than my son. He was my friend. He sounds like a wonderful kid. Oh, my God, he was. Police say Johnny was selling an Xbox, found some buyers using an app. His father drove him here. These two individuals are from the neighborhood. They lured them into the neighborhood, said brought them to an abandoned home in that neighborhood. His dad knew something was up, saw the gun, tried to warn his son, but Johnny was shot in the back as he ran to the car, pronounced dead a short distance from the scene. Tonight, friends are using Facebook to raise money for his funeral. I just completely don't understand. I just don't understand how somebody over an Xbox can take somebody's life. And as of tonight, not much in the way of a suspect description, just two African-American males, late teens to early 20s, police say they are looking for some tips from the public and they're reminding anyone involved in any kind of online transaction to meet in a public, well-lit, safe place like a police station parking lot. That's why the U.S. Marshals were looking for him, but even though his friends probably knew what a sketchy character Brandon was, they don't really care. Of anger from friends of Weber. Brandon Weber's friends actually gathered at Central High School today around noon. Weber, we're told, graduated from that high school back in 2017. Fox 13's Alexa Lorenzo is live there in Fraser tonight with more reaction. Alexa. And a lot of those friends are also now here at the home. You can see it's pretty busy. There are cars lining the street in front of the home where investigators say everything happened. But it's peaceful. We spent the day growing through a Facebook Live that the suspect posted hours before he was shot and killed. Brandon Weber went live on Facebook the same day of the shooting. The now deleted eight minute long video shows the 20 year old talking to friends through the comments and smoking. You take me for a joke. Until he drives past police. He said catch. They're saying he said kill. You know, to make it seem like it was justifiable. His longtime friends gathered at their alma mater today, Central High School. They were there to express their concern with how U.S. Marshals handled the situation. They shot and killed him. We don't know Brandon to have warrants. No one does. Investigators say he did. Warrants out of Hernando, Mississippi. The TBI says U.S. Marshals found Weber in Fraser Wednesday afternoon. Detectives tell us Weber rammed a car into an officer's cruiser and got out with a gun. That's when U.S. Marshals took his life. It's just crazy how they went there for a search warrant and left with a dead body. His friends say the family is begging for more information from investigators. They say Weber was loved by everyone and did not have problems with police. It's hard to even think about it, even to imagine, you know, that a person, you know, personally has to go through something like that. A, people, a person has kids, a person has things going for themselves. They tell me he was a student at the University of Memphis and the heart of their friend group. You knew if you needed anything, you could call Brandon. You know, if you needed to talk, you could call these tears sparked activism. Weber's friends tell me they won't stop until they get more details from detectives. When you bring a whole city out because of somebody whose life was taken, you know that person wasn't just a, you know, a limb on a tree. That was the tree. Why don't we hear a little bit from Brandon's cousin? Right, bro. He's for lining up like they right, bro. He's for lining up like they right, bro.
This shit crazy, bro. This shit crazy hell, fool on God, bro. This shit crazy hell, fool. These four lining up like they right, bro. Look at these bitches, bro. These four just killed my motherfucking cousin, bro. These four just killed my motherfucking cousin, bro. This shit crazy, bro. This shit done killed my, my cousin down there laying in the street, fool. Laying in the yard, bro. I'm with wherever y'all with. I promise, I'm with wherever y'all with. I don't want to hear no nice ass shit, bro. I don't want to hear no nice ass shit, bro. I mean, if I'm with whatever y'all with, bro. If y'all want to whoop the police, I'm with it. Y'all want to whoop these folks, I'm with it, bro. That's on GD, fool. That's on GD, bro. These folks done killed Brandon, bro. This shit crazy, bro. My fuck a job, bro. I don't want to hear no nice ass shit, bro. I mean, I don't want to hear no nice ass shit. I don't want to hear that shit, bro. That's my mom. I don't want to hear no motherfucking nice ass shit, bro. I don't want to hear that shit, bro. I don't wanna hear that shit, fool. I don't wanna hear that shit, bro. Nigga killed my mother. And here's Brandon himself bragging about how he's a badass and the cops are never gonna take him in. Yeah, I, I didn't understand it either, but luckily I found somebody who interpreted the words for us so we could figure it out. Yeah, they say he's smoking something. Yeah, that's pot. Okay. That's a blunt. That's pot. That's marijuana. It's cannabis sativa. Yeah, that's Brandon. Bragging how he's going to smoke some joints and uh, give the cops what's coming to them if they decide to mess with him, by God. Bitch ass police fucking up a nigga day. That's some hoes. What's up? Big Jill come around with me in a minute. Oh, really? I'm finna pull it back up. Yeah, I got the hood uh, What's up, son? Man, he fall hot in the hood. Man, they bullshit. Come on, he just hunted this fire in me. The police. Oh, God. Look at these bitches. Oh, fire, fam. You guys have to kill me, homie. <laughs> you guys have to kill me, homie. I ain't even gonna lie. I'm gonna do that ass so bad that it fell off. <laughs> it be so funny saying them bitches. And I'm gonna pull out so they can see me. They cannot kill me. They wanna be me. I'm the young nigga. Um, yeah, diamond. Hit a day, baby. Yeah, these bitch out of like I got in the TV. I go so smooth. Mm -hmm. Bitches, they hate, they won't be me. Yeah, these niggas, they hate, they can see me. Yeah. Well, just for the hell of it, how about a little bit of, uh, reality to balance up that fiction we just heard. This is coming from a cop, the same cop who walked us through all the bad business in Los Angeles, California, when those two cops were ambushed. One was shot in the housing projects of uh, the Shooting Newton district. Hey, Colin, he says, here's a fun fact about the U.S. Marshal as it relates to the Memphis shooting and subsequent riots. The U.S. Marshal is basically dedicated to one main task, the location and apprehension of only the most dangerous criminals. I have an officer assigned to the U.S. Marshal Task Force as a task force officer. A city officer like my guy is cross-sworn as a federal agent, so he has powers to enforce federal warrants. The U.S. Marshal and my task force guy select the most violent and dangerous targets to pursue. In fact, 
before I will even authorize my officer to participate in an apprehension, he must bring a packet to me outlining the target's great danger to the community. It is only then that they will adopt the target. All that being said, I can tell you from personal experience and supervision that the U.S. Marshal and their officers only go after the worst of the worst. You have to earn the right to be pursued by them. I guarantee you they were hunting this poor, poor fella for no reason whatsoever other than the fact that he was expected to fight, expected to run, expected to ram cop cars, expected to have a gun. And looky, and looky there. It's exactly what he did. It's not a coincidence. It wasn't random. They went after the worst of the worst, and he responded as was anticipated. Let's see if they burn their city down. Again, signed, your cop. Please, sir. I want some more. So here's what we're looking in the eye in Memphis right now. Let's see how many of all of us have the guts to, to, to look it in the eye, to keep staring at it without flinching. The fellas and lovely ladies knew the marshals were after a very, very dangerous dude who just tried to kill somebody over a Xbox or some minor thing worth a couple of bucks. They knew he had a gun. They knew he was wolfing about, not, you know, about the cops and what he was going to do. They knew that. And after the cops caught him, after the marshals caught him and gave him what he asked for, suicide by cop, everybody decided they were going to burn Memphis down anyway, even though the cops were, and the marshals were doing their jobs, taking a very dangerous fella off the streets. Last week on Monday, one of the fellas, long record, history of violence, known for violent tendencies, he killed a cop during a relatively recent, routine, a relatively routine uh, stop for, for disturbance at a Pep Boys. Well, that didn't even matter to anybody in Sacramento who had a big anti-cop rally planned for the very next day. Because everybody knows on the sixth anniversary of one of the fellas getting killed by a cop for whatever reason, well, that's just something we cannot overlook. No matter what the numbers are, no matter the numbers show that black people kill way more cops than cops kill unarmed black people. Let's take a look at this latest bit of ridiculousness out of Sacramento. Hours pour into the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. We're getting through this uh, with the support of our community. Honoring and remembering Deputy Mark Stasiuk. Killed Monday afternoon after responding to a disturbance call at the Rancho Cordova Pep Boys. Somebody unfortunately lost their life senselessly. You know, there was no need for that. The 27-year-old was a four-and-a-half-year veteran of the force. Relatives say he just married the love of his life, Amy, back in March. He was really uh, career-minded. He wanted to move his career forward and learn. He was always willing to learn. As this investigation continues, we're learning more about the suspect, 38-year-old Anton Lemon. Sacramento County Superior Court records reveal Lemon has a long criminal history. That he is no stranger to law enforcement. He's currently on probation for carrying a loaded firearm back in 2016. His social media accounts suggest he was a rapper in Sacramento going by the name Mista Flow. Instagram posts on what appears to be his account 
show videos of automatic guns. You know, those weapons do exist in our community, but unfortunately in this case they're possessed by someone who does not have a legal right to possess those weapons. So uh, when you look at it from that, from that angle, absolutely, that is disturbing. And investigators searched Moore's house earlier today. It's less than two miles from here. We spoke with neighbors in that area, and they say they honestly weren't very surprised to hear that he was the suspect in this crime. They say he has long been aggressive in that neighborhood, even threatening some of his neighbors. His name! If the six-month mark of the death of Stephon Clark proved anything, it's that Sacramento still has more healing to do. I think it was a good way to get our voices out there and make sure my brother's name doesn't die in vain. Despite some moments of tension, Stevante Clark, Stefan's brother, says this demonstration Tuesday in Sacramento was a show of love for his late brother. Stevante says he was happy to see support for fallen sheriff's deputy Mark Stasiuk as well, killed in the line of duty Monday. The Clark family stands with Mark's family and all the unarmed teens and black men. and. Um, Everyone who's been a victim, we stand with all the victims. We're victims as well. But make no mistake, half a year later, the Clark family is still hurting. It's unbelievable that no one has come to even apologize, even to acknowledge their, their part in the death of my son. You know, it, that hurts. I want us to confront the system that causes us to all be at each other's throats. Reverend Kevin Ross is looking to take real steps to move Sacramento forward. You have an opportunity. He and other religious leaders are hosting a Force for Good unity rally Wednesday night, honoring both victims of police shootings and fallen law enforcement officers. Someone needs to step forward and seek to bring back a sense of unity among us all. We, we can't heal each other because we don't hear each other. This group acknowledges it'll be a tough road to fully address Sacramento's racial and social divides. But in the view of Stefan Clark's mother, at least now, were forced to deal with it. I think that the progress that has been made is that uh, it's in your face now. Okay, okay. The protesters threw a little bone saying, oh yeah, we remember the cop who just got killed yesterday by that guy for no reason whatsoever. But can we get back to the real issue, how black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism all the time, everywhere, that explains everything? That's the issue. Not that every day on the beat, on the job, cops and deputies are confronted with enormous amounts of hostility, violence, hatred, assault, and even murder. Come to the conclusion that media collusion is wrapped up in denial and deceit and delusion. It can't be true. Come on and get a clue. Cause everybody knows white people do it too. I really like to play the knockout game Or leave your store in total disarray, disarray Don't hassle me, cause all your stuff is for free I didn't do nothing anyway Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team Don't report random argy-bargy that you see on TV Cause you know through and through All you're gonna do is make the black kids angry It's not mob violence, it's just a fight Fellas blowing off a little steam 
Some midnight basketball will be just fine In the middle of our quiet, safe community We're always getting picked on for no reason whatsoever That explains everything now until forever It really doesn't matter what happened to what they said I did, I didn't do Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team Talk about the violent fellas who 